Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the new series of The Rabbit Hole Detectives, a podcast where I, Dr. Kat Jarman, Richard Coles and Charles Spencer chase the provenance of historical objects, both real and metaphorical. Each episode, we set one another the task of finding out as much as we can about a particular subject to present a comprehensive understanding of the origin stories of stuff. After all, everything has a history. It just depends on how far down the rabbit hole you're prepared to go. And at the end of it all, our disembodied voice pronounces a winner. Yeah. So, yeah, oh yes. <laughs> kind of. Let's start with that straight away, shall we? Well, but welcome back. Know. Let's just but welcome back first well, of no, all. It's shall lovely we? to see you. I've just been nursing some resentments in our short break. I just Rooting. thought. I'd, well, I just wanted to just make sure that the disembodied voice was fully aware that there are issues of justice and equity involved in it. Just. Yeah. But can I say you, you begged to win the Dachshund one, and would you reward a begging Dachshund? So you, you you ruled yourself out. Most now. of my life is rewarding begging Daxons. So <laughs> I got forward. Well, we're sort of looking forward to the increased efforts and sort of enthusiasm that we're going to get this I'm season. I'm going to give you, Kat, 111 percent. Excellent. Can't wait. Look, it's like we've never been away. <laughs> I know. Actually, I have to say, it's so nice to be back. And I think we must just do the same. You've had second album syndrome. Yes, I have had the difficult second album. Yes. Well, I think if you well my. If you don't broke, don't fix it. I think we've got this. Are you going to let works. the fame go to your head, though, now that we've oh, had well, a successful fame's, season? Fame went I'm to my head. I'm a bit worried about you with this. In 1984 or something. <laughs> well, it's actually when I was head chorister and I was on Look East singing the carol one Christmas. Yeah. That was about that's, 19... That's about the only one of your four million achievements you haven't shared with us before. <laughs> and now I have. <laughs> the CSE and Carpentry or something, wasn't it, you did? No, I didn't. We didn't do anything like that. Yeah. Did you do useful things like at school? We did metalwork really. or woodwork in Scandinavia. You were, yeah. We did lots of woodwork and things like that. We did um, but actual proper cooking. You, we know, learned how to wash up. We had like a procedure for how to wash up. But your education, you know, I mean, you did a hundred languages. You did <laughs> woodwork. You did washing up. You did everything. Yeah. You were schooled all the bloody skiing. Time, you? Did skiing. We did skiing at school. Ice skating. This is why Norwegians will conquer the world again, right? Because yes. you've got such a formidable <laughs> education. It has taken fifteen. Those years things on. are quite good. Other things are. A bit more tricky but yeah no it's just it's practical things were very good definitely now before we fall too far That's down right. that yes. rabbit hole <laughs> which is tempting i think we need to get on with it really but i think before we start we have to 
really thank all our listeners. Mm-hmm. We know lots of listeners and we've had so many lovely reviews, which is absolutely fantastic. Yes. And also some suggestions. So we will be covering some of uh, some of those rabbit holes that people have suggested that we fall into, which is great. But when we left you last week, we didn't actually share the new rabbit holes for us to fall down. But don't worry, we have picked them. And as the defending champion and holder of the golden magnifying Mm. glass, (laughs) Charles. Which I have to say hasn't materialised, just going to mention that. There's still salt in a wound though, Charles. (laughs) (laughs) Even without your glittering trophies. (laughs) Fine, well, I'm sure you will get one eventually, but you're going to be allowed to start today. And the topic that you've got to talk to us about is botched coronations. Yes, It's so intriguing because we've had 950 years or so of coronations in Westminster Abbey. And we don't know which was the first. It might have been Harold who died at the Battle of Hastings, but it was uh, possibly William the Conqueror. And William the Conqueror sets the tone for botched coronations quite firmly, actually. He was one of three major services at Westminster Abbey that year. At the beginning, you had Edward the Confessor's burial, possibly had Harold's coronation there. And then you have William the Conqueror who turns up having not just one at Hastings, but having swept through the country, he encircles London, he's not sure if he's going to win England. So he's very keen when it gets to victory, when everyone lays down their arms, to make the coronation something really special. And he also is conscious of a prophecy a year before he died from Edward the Confessor, the previous full king of England before Harold. And Edward the Confessor had a view that England needed to heal itself. And so William the Conqueror, saw himself as being the healer of England and brought in a sort of ecumenical service in a way, a French and English, Norman French and English service. But a lot was lost in translation. So he brought in this French priest, the Bishop of Coutances, to do half the service in French and then an Archbishop of England to do the rest, Eldred. But they hadn't really run through it. And this is the constant theme of the botched coronations, is not enough preparation. So the old English way of doing a coronation was for the coronation essentially to be announced. And then the Witan, who were the sort of wise, strong men of England, would bellow their appreciation. Well, William the Conqueror was quite nervous about how things would go and had stationed guards outside the abbey. And when this acclamation was bellowed by the Anglo-Saxons, the Normans thought it was a, an assassination attempt. And so they set light to London. <laughs> uh, and, and this is a real, you can imagine the smoke pouring into Westminster Abbey. Everyone evacuated apart from the two leading bishops and a few monks. And we have William the Conqueror, this great titan of military repute, shaking, quaking as he's crowned. And this was the ultimate sort of botched coronation until you come Ooh. to actually, I have to say, a forgotten king who has the genius of being possibly the stupidest member of the royal family ever, George IV. Was that the Prince Regent? Yes, he had been Prince Regent. To give him his credit, very good collector of art, good builder. Uh, The Royal Pavilion at Brighton was his. He remodelled Buckingham Palace. But he loved loved show. He loved extravagance. I like him already. (laughs) (laughs) And he managed to spend... £240,000 in, in 1821 on his coronation. But the whole thing was a disaster. So essentially, he was going to be crowned in 1820. But he was going through a very tricky separation with his wife, Caroline of Brunswick. They'd been forced to marry. They were cousins. They didn't really like each other. They both had really scandalous love lives. But people liked Caroline of Brunswick. She was thought of as a good old thing. 
And when she was clearly not going to be allowed by her husband to be part of the coronation, he put it back by year to 1821. But she turned up at 6 a.m. on the day of the coronation and demanded to be let in. The guards wouldn't let her in. She had a huge following in the country, and people didn't like George IV. He had made sure it was going to be the most magnificent event ever. He insisted that all his courtiers dress either Tudors or Stuarts. <laughs> and he spent £24,000 on his coronation robes. I can't imagine what might have gone wrong in their marriage. <laughs> <laughs> he is an absolute buffoon. And he did this... Um, Incredible thing. He, he wanted to resurrect some of the medieval traditions, including the king's champion riding in and, and throwing a gauntlet three times as part of this sort of fantastic display of pageantry. Well, the trouble is that the hereditary champion was a priest. So he asked his son to fill in, but his son didn't have a very good horse and he had to borrow one from Astley's Circus. And this sort of sets, <laughs> sets the whole theme of a rather underwhelming day. <laughs> And we also have the manuscript of the coronation was mislaid. And so in the end, George IV's coronation is marked by a, an order of service, which he scribbled his, his signature on. And then we have his niece, you know, that, uh, had a terrible botched coronation. And that was Queen Victoria in 1838. You messed that up too. Yes. If you think that we had three in 17 years, they should have got it right. <laughs> but in 1838, there wasn't really a rehearsal. The Queen was uh, woken up at four that morning by them practicing cannon fire in the park outside. 400,000 people turned up in London because the trains had just opened up the capital to people. She was stuck in a traffic jam for 45 minutes. The service went on for five hours and she needed to retreat to a chapel. But everyone forgot that the chapel was being used for wine and sandwiches. So she was in there with all the confectionery, etc. She had an old dignitary called Lord Rollers, and he rolled down the steps. It became a sort of encapsulation of a disastrous coronation. The whole thing was an absolute disaster, but people loved it. They had a four-day party. They liked the whole thing. The archbishop was not quite with it mm -hmm. and insisted on putting her ring on the wrong finger, which caused her agony for many hours. It took her hours to get it off. So all in all, a complete catastrophe. I've got a theory about this, Charles. Coronations, I don't know no, since when, but traditionally are overseen by the Earl Marshal of England, who's the Duke of Norfolk. It's a hereditary thing, isn't it? Yes. So it's amateur hour. But I mean, no disrespect to the Dukes of Norfolk, but it is not... My theory is that coronations... <laughs> Might only, not be their thing. Well, it, well, I mean, you know, you're too busy being Duke of Norfolk, I guess. So my theory is that coronations only started going right when the BBC got involved when they started televising it, because that's really done to a standard which would be highly professional, I think. Yes. A record, a permanent record, which I suppose yeah. would be a written you record, but it's not the same. It. You can, yeah. So we all compare it, don't we, with the coronation of the late Elizabeth II, which, although I wasn't around for it, but you've seen the film, you've seen that it was, you know, it was televised, so it was done absolutely à point. I don't suppose it really mattered, did it, if Queen well, Victoria's no. went haywire? No, but actually going slightly off at a rabbit hole, we got, as a sort of consequence of the Queen's coronation being televised, we got the Eurovision Song Contest. Because Eurovision <laughs> television was set up to cover the actual event. And they thought, this is marvellous. We can actually broadcast along to several countries at once. And so that was the... You're saying Queen Elizabeth II was responsible for boom, bang, a bang. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. This there is, is the information There is a yes. link. It's a tough one. So we go but, from yeah. William the Conqueror to Eurovision. I like that. Well, I, yeah, and I also think... I was so pleased, you know, when you when you handed a subject like this, to come across someone so rich in comedy as uh, George the Fourth, when Napoleon died, 
one of his key favorites, a man called Nagel, said to him, Sire, your bitterest enemy is dead. And he went, good, is she? About his wife. <laughs> and um, I just think this is a rather marvelous figure to have on the throne. I was just thinking about, um, about a monarchy, hereditary monarchy, isn't it? Is that you never know what you're going to get. And you think that over the centuries, the system would develop ways of mitigating the effects of an idiot or a buffoon. <laughs> but in in a way, does it... I mean, since 1688, I'm not sure it's really mattered because the yeah. the person on the throne is not like President Putin where they have undisputed power. They, they've been a, a, a symbol. Yeah. Charles mentioned the cost of the 1821 coronation, £240,000. That would be around about £33 million in today's money. So less than King Charles's, but uh, <laughs> still a significant amount. <laughs> Tricky to get that right. I'm looking at where your royal family... In Norway, complicated yeah. backstory, isn't it? I mean, the ones you've got now were the invention of the 19th century, weren't they? A sort of, I don't know, some kind of German princely house or something that kind of fed royals into all the monarchies of Europe. Yeah, they're all very, very closely connected, aren't they? I have to admit, it's all cousins, not aren't my, they? Yeah. Yeah. But what about the Viking era? Yeah, I mean, that's where, so it's really at the end of the Viking age that we start getting the countries of Scandinavia and then we start getting these gathered kings. And They're all called begin, Olaf, right? Lots of them, <laughs> Olaf or Harold, yeah. there's lots of Haralds yeah. as well, and Magnus, and yeah, you've got the same names, basically. It makes it easier, in a way. <laughs> and were they hereditary, or were they elected? Not really, no. I mean, not definitely not elected, but you sort of fight your way to it, really, more than anything. And they're starting, so in this period, they start to meet from much smaller kingdoms. The same thing that happens in, in England as well, in, in the same period, you've got smaller kingdoms coalescing into the bigger kingdoms and turning into England and turning into nations then of Norway, Sweden, Denmark. And that's when you have this one big king, one royal, bringing it all together. It's linked into Christianity. So the sort of link between the church and the coronation being actually and then there's a sort of sense that you're actually being crowned, so you're being accepted by God yeah. as the ruler of the country. So you have that religious well, link. It's that, not just political, it's, it's religious. That's so interesting about the coronations in Westminster Abbey, and it'll be interesting to see how this coronation deals with this. But in, in, in certainly in, in medieval times, once you were anointed at your coronation, you were seen almost as semi-divine. You were seen yeah. as separate from normal mankind. Yeah. So as a priest, if I watch the coronation, it looks very much like an ordination at some point. Oh. And I think the monarch wears a dalmatic, which is a Eucharistic vestment. What's amazing is how some things have survived and some haven't. So from ancient times. So there's a 12th century spoon that was used. I know about that. In coronations. And that, after Charles I's execution in 1649, that was flogged by Parliament. They didn't want all that stuff. And one of... Charles I courtiers kept it and then handed it back at the restoration. So we still have that. Whereas the oil, the sacred oil, as they would see it, that was used for anointing was lost in the Blitz. So they had to concoct a new one for Queen Elizabeth. I also, you know, I love the, with the um, coronation of Queen Victoria, they really hadn't thought it through. Benjamin Disraeli was a young MP at the time and he said it was quite clear, nobody knew what was happening next. And the archbishop stopped the service a couple of times because he thought it was over and people started wandering <laughs> off. And, and actually the same happened with... George IV, the choir left before uh, before him, <laughs> and it was just chaos. And and the man in charge of music at Queen Victoria's was a man called Sir George Smart, and they hadn't thought it through because he was on the organ and meant to be conducting at the same time, and it just didn't go well. At the Queen's coronation, it got a bit 
you know, trying to get all your vivats in the right place. You've got massive choirs and orchestras and trumpeters and everything. And the Abbey is a difficult space. I mean, the bit where the, the coronation actually happens on the oculus, I think, which is in the, in the sanctuary. But as you know, the Abbey is long and thin. So what's happening at the end, how would you know what was happening at the other end? You wouldn't really. So, you know, wing in a prayer. Yes. But as you say, before 19, the 1950s, nobody really knew. Do you have a favourite fact that you would like to share with us, Charles? I have a favourite fact because it's about, you have to forgive me, it's not about coronations, it's about George IV because he's suddenly become a real favourite of mine. And he suffered from slight delusions and he used to say to the Duke of Wellington, I led a charge at Waterloo, didn't I? And the Duke of Wellington would always reply, I have often heard your highness say so. Because <laughs> he hadn't been anywhere near. <laughs> and I just think how fantastic to think you were involved in the greatest battle of the age just because you wanted to be. Brilliant. Well, the madness of his father, the famous madness of George III. Yes. Was there any hereditary? We don't really know. Do no, I just, I just think he was, um, he just wasn't very bright. If you enjoy dressing up that much, maybe you dress up facts as well. I suppose so. Well, that's one of the things that monarchies do, isn't it? Is tell a particular story. Yeah, yeah. Traditionally, nobody could really say anything against them. So <laughs> there we go. <laughs> that's brilliant. Thank you so much. So I think I'm going to go next now. And I have a topic that uh, one of our reviewers suggested. Oh, brilliant. And it was somebody apparently called Fractrice Francophile. I'm assuming it's not his real name. And the suggestion was the history of the postal services and postal deliveries. Brilliant. So that's going to be my topic today. And yes, quite a few rabbit holes here. So obviously you can you can look at different postal services in, in, in the UK, in America. I'm going to get back to that. But it kind of brought me back to the very start. You know, how do you define sort of post and deliveries and, and all of that? So not just the kind of organized services. But what we can do is we can look at things being delivered, messages being delivered, because that's kind of the start of it, really, which brought me way back to my very first essay as an undergrad archaeology student, which was on the emergence of writing and writing systems, because this is really starting with deliveries and things like goods. So writing um, was uh, developed kind of independently uh, in different parts of the world, in the Near East, China uh, and Mesoamerica as well. But first, the cuneiform script, which is really the first script that emerges in the 8th millennium BC, starting with these little tokens, counting tokens, that kind of work a little bit like postal messages. So you've got clay tokens and they've got to do with goods being delivered. So the tokens represent something. We don't quite know what. So it's kind of like an accounting system. I was going so to say, have, basically, literature began with accountancy is what yeah, you're saying. Okay. pretty much. Yeah. And you have these, so they can represent, I don't know, jars of oil or whatever, presumably coming with the goods. Um, they then start to protect them within little envelopes. So you have an envelope containing, say, five or whatever of these are being sent to someone. And then somebody goes, well, actually, that's a bit annoying because you have to smash open the envelope to be able to see what's inside. So they, they start to represent on the outside by stamping the tokens on the clay to say what's inside it and what sort of goods are inside. And then presumably somebody has the clever idea that you don't actually need the tokens at all on the envelope. You can just do it on a, on a tablet. And then eventually that becomes a system where they all represent different things. So these presumably are being sent across from one place to another and as the sort of accounting system. And then later on that develops into cuneiform script around 3000 BC in what is now Iraq in Mesopotamia. So you quite quickly then start to get letters and you start to have these wonderful cuneiform tablets that are clearly being delivered from place to place. We've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them that we can find so we can get the insights into that world and into the letters that people are sending. That's a massive big rabbit hole all in itself, really. Then, of course, we get the development of the alphabet, which becomes the alphabet we have today, moving on to sort of 
things like uh, the Roman world and the Roman Empire, which is when we start to see really messages being sent in much more like a sort of postal system we might think about. In my mind, Kat, Romans used to write on wax tablets, but I got that yeah. from my source of all knowledge on the Roman Empire, which is everyday life in the Roman world, which I think everyone's read. But didn't they write with a, with a stylus on a wax tablet? Yeah, that's definitely one of the main ways that messages are being sent across. But what they do uh, develop, which doesn't really start with the Roman, is this sort of postal relay system, which I think is quite exciting. This happens in lots of different parts of the world. The first one is actually in China. But then the Persian Empire of Cyrus in the 6th century BC starts to employ relays of mounted messages and post houses. And Cyrus is really, really interested in how to make this as effective as possible. So he starts to look at how far a horse can travel without needing rest really, really quickly, setting uh, up this Royal Persian Road where he builds post stations at intervals and making sure that the horses can be replaced. And the system actually allowed couriers to travel 2,750 kilometres in seven days, wow. which is remarkable. That is incredible. So have we worked out how many horse rides that would be? I mean, how many are you... Are you flogging them to the end of their ability, or, or what is, what's this? Well, more or less. So he sort of he he wants to make sure that there is as efficient as possible. So he sets up these stations where you can mm. change horses, and then they can rest, and then they can come back again. Mm. There's some other ones as well that use exactly the same system that the Romans uh, used it as well. Obviously, they've got amazing roads, and then they have this cursus publicus, which is probably the most developed postal system of the ancient world, um, where again, he's got the same sort of thing. You can cover 170 miles in a day and a night along that system. Militarily, it gives a massive advantage, doesn't it, if your lines of communication are faster than your enemies? Absolutely. Absolutely. Driven by military need. Yeah. And so you got and you all have this sort of big administrative system as well that's set up to help it. So that doesn't really get rivaled until Europe in the 19th century. That's how good this was. And we see it in other parts as well. So in India, there's this wonderful record from the 14th century. One of the Arabic travellers, Ibn Battuta, who was travelling around the whole of the Islamic world, really, he comes to India, to Hindustan where he observes a very similar system where they've got two types of couriers and they've got horse-mounted couriers and foot messengers. First they're and second classes. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> so they're set up at different distances. The foot messengers every mile and then every four miles there's another horse courier. So the horse courier comes along, take, picks up a sort of dispatch or letters or whatever. He's got a whip with bells on it that he sort of rings the whole way as he's riding and then comes to the next messengers and, and moves over and, and that one is sent off. And again, it's just remarkably efficient systems and they're all set up just to sort of get from A to B as quickly as they possibly can. This reminds me a little bit of, Charles, when you were talking about the standardisation of time and time zones, that in order to run your organisation, your country, your empire, effectively, you need to standardise things. And this is a way of doing that, isn't it? Absolutely. So we've got these, these early big empires doing it, really. But then after the fall of Rome, if you talk about Europe, there isn't really a good system because there, you haven't got that larger scale infrastructure. So yeah. you've got smaller scale things happening, but it's not until the Middle Ages that this starts to be uh, picked up again. And again, it's, it's more kind of private persons that sort of do it as a private person rather than a kind of larger royal sanction or anything like that. That comes in much later. I wonder if there were people in, say, the 5th century saying, like people say today, oh, in the old days you could post a letter and you know it gets there. <laughs> yeah. Now, you never know who's going to yes. get there because the gods of vandals interrupted yeah well you get these um it's really interesting what happens especially after, after rome because you have several generations where people will remember 
things that they used to be able to do. Yeah. And then you've got new people coming in. So that's really interesting. You've got lots of systems, clearly, of, of smaller messages. So you have in parts of the world that don't really use much writing. So even Scandinavia and the Viking Age, you have rune inscriptions, but not really writing systems as such. But as you get later, you get little messages, you get little rune sticks for little short messages. And these, this is a little bit later into the sort of early Middle Ages, but from uh, Bergen, for example, you get all of these little sticks and they have messages. And one of them is clearly from a wife to a husband saying, come home. Um, so you're out drinking, or come don't. home. Don't. <laughs> yeah. Come home or your kids are on their <laughs> Pretty own. Much. Yeah. Some of them are quite hilarious. Um, so they're almost like little text messages that people are sending. But, you know, to just go back to the actual postal systems, it's right of the more sort of stronger nation states with strong central governments that you have this. So in the Middle Ages, after the development of the uh, printing press, Gutenberg's printing press as well. So obviously the written word is, is sort of easier to send across. In Europe, you've got the Thurnan Taxes family. Thurnan Taxes. Thurnan Taxes, that's all Oh, I know about them. Do you know about them? Yeah, so Gloria Thurnan Taxes. I think it's still alive. But, oh, there's uh, nobody called Gloria Thurnan yes. Taxes. <laughs> she was known as Princess T&T, and she married uh, an elder cousin who was the Prince of Thurnan Taxes, and they had that trumpet sign, which you see yes. on European postal boxes still. Ooh. And that's where they made their huge fortune from. And I went to do a profile. I was selling... They had a nine-day sale of some of their odds and ends in Regensburg Castle. And Gloria Turner Taxis used to drive a Harley Davidson around the inside of Regensburg Castle. So and big. she had as her musician that weekend a man dressed head to toe in purple. It turned out he was Prince, the rock star's father, hence the purple for Purple Rain. And it was the most bonkers place I've ever been in my life. But it was all built on a medieval service for the Holy Roman Emperor. But yeah. So the post horn, which I just assumed yes. was an instrument that would be useful, it actually comes from their coat from of arms. From their coat of arms. Oh, I didn't know that. So this goes back all the way to the 13th century, actually, which is when they started this courier service, ending up at one point having 20,000 couriers just sending post and parcel the messages um, across. So it's hugely successful. Good monopoly to have. So it was yeah. a comms fortune. Yes, that's yes. exactly it. It was a tech. Yes. Exactly, exactly. That's so that's really one of the earliest ones. In England, we don't really see it until the 16th century. So Henry VIII appoints a master of the posts in 1516, which is sometimes said to be the, the beginning of the postal mm -hmm. service. But it wasn't really for public use. That was really not until 1635, where Charles I opened the postal service to the public and start to get essentially established post offices. And look offices. how they repaid him. <laughs> cut his head off. Bring people together and look what Yeah, exactly. Something obviously went wrong. So it kind of starts from there, really. And then you've got development things like the stamping introduced. Well, now this is a big thing. This is English chauvinism here because we all think that we sort of invented that through the penny post. It's a big thing, isn't it? When I grew up, having a penny black or a penny red in your stamp album was a big deal. Yes. The penny post was actually a sort of slightly rival scheme to the post office. That was somebody called William Dockra who set up the Penny Post in London, which offered prepaid stamped letters and hourly deliveries, oh. which was so hugely successful that we he... We think Roland Hill, don't we, is there? But he was actually shut down quite soon afterwards because it was so successful that he was prosecuted for infringing the state monopoly on postal services. This is fascinating. Well, there's so much money to be made. You don't yeah. want somebody hiving it off, do you? Exactly. So, but the government then later on reinstated it because... You know, it was clearly such a, a good idea. But you see that it's because the impact then that the mobile phone has now, if you control yeah. the means of people communicating in this new way, you've got it made, haven't Absolutely. you? Absolutely. Well, yeah. social media. 
Twitter, yeah. you know, whatever. It's all in the sort of early stages. But obviously, different countries also then do different things. So if you look at the US, there wasn't really much of a, a good postal system there until Benjamin Franklin actually was appointed as Deputy Postmaster General in 1753. Northamptonshire boy. Oh, yes. Is he really? Yes, he is. Yeah. Yeah. How funny. As of the Washingtons. So he, he became the kind of first Postmaster General. And then the US is really interesting because they've got lots of independent services as well. Things like the Pony Express, oh, yeah. known for yes, that. Um, Wild West, so Buffalo Bill. William Cody, people like that, who worked for the Pony Express. Um, that was the less glamorous side of their work, though, wasn't it, really? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, quite possibly. They murder people by day and yeah. deliver letters by night. Just, you know, we've got to do something, haven't do you know, we, the rest of your day? Never really understood. Well, I found this out because I spoke to an American post lady, actually, about it. But the thing in America where you have your post box on a post at the end of your drive yeah. and they stick it in and they put a little flag up, why doesn't everyone have their post nicked all the time? You'd think it would be the easiest pickings in the world just going to help yourselves. Well, it's a federal crime. And if you do nick something from someone's post box, the penalties are so swinging that nobody does it. We have those real post boxes in, in Norway as well. Oh, really? The bottom of your drive. And it's just not something that people pinch no, from. you just don't really do it. Anyway, back to the Americans. The other, I found a really brilliant story that I absolutely loved when I was looking into this. And in order to expand the postal services, they, they add all these extra contractors, basically, for different routes. And one of those was the Star Routes that was established in 1845, where external contractors could sort of set up different routes in, into different areas, especially. And... There was one person who was absolutely brilliant, somebody called Stagecoach Mary, which was called Mary Fields. Now, she was the first African-American woman to carry mail on a star route and actually only the second woman ever to do this. She was born into slavery and uh, emancipated in 1863, did lots of interesting jobs. She worked in convent, she worked for a mission, but she kept losing her job because she was just basically swearing too much and she was um, getting into fights. <laughs> Sorry, Mary. <laughs> she was getting into fights, drawing guns on somebody, but the nuns really, really liked her, apparently. Eventually, she moved to Montana and in her early 60s, she got a contract by the post office department to be a star route carrier. So she set this up in her 60s in really quite difficult territories, but she got all these nuns to help her as well. <laughs> but she was absolutely fearless, uh, which was fantastic, because her job wasn't just to deliver the mail, but she had to protect it as well from bandits, thieves, wolves, and the weather. So she had her stagecoach, but she was known for carrying guns as well. So she always carried a rifle and a, a revolver under her apron, and she would just basically fight off anyone that she needed to. So she was completely ruthless and very brave, really, really popular. She drank a lot, so she used to be found in the sort of local establishments. Mm -hmm. Apparently when uh, women were banned from saloons and from drinking in Montana uh, around about the time, she uh, got an exemption from the mayor to go in and go drinking because she was so popular for all the work that she was doing. She sort of was really quite unusual because this was a, a that part of the West was very much a, a white society and to have this woman doing this postal delivery, very brave job, was fantastic. So she comes up in lots of films and things as well, actually, Stagecoach Mary. But you can see there's a popular folk mythology thing there, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But you know, that thing you mentioned about postal crime in America is so interesting because I think the Birdman of Alcatraz, one of his strikes, which meant he went to prison for life, was 
doing something with a postal order, which oh. was, you know, that's federal property yes. going through a federal system. So it's one of the most famous prisoners anyway, was imprisoned for that as his postal, final strike. Postal element to his offending. Yes. yes, yes. Isn't it illegal to open somebody else's post? Now you tell me. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I think it is. I don't know, it's been a while since I steamed open a letter. <laughs> but I have to. Just don't tell anyone. If convicted of stealing just one piece of mail in the United States, you could face up to five years in prison and uh, a fine of up to $250,000, which seems really significant crazy. for one person. But that also mail. tells you something about the importance, doesn't it, of those The integrity, networks, yes. Especially in an expanding country with frontiers that are moving. You need to yeah. protect that. Yeah, yes. and that communication and keeping it safe, which is really, really interesting. Because now, I mean, when did you last send a letter? I can tell you when. It was uh, at the request of the Chief Constable of Surrey, because I seem to have broken some piffling law about speeding on the M23. Uh, I sent one this morning. I still, <laughs> I suppose I'm incredibly old-fashioned. My father taught us, you know, there's no, this is obviously, he died long before email, but the importance of a, a timely response to an invitation. Or Actually, you are, you. you are unrivaled in that, the, the nice thank you letter, <laughs> the written the day after the thing. I think if they get you young enough parents, you do, you take on some of their values, don't you? I always, when I was vicaring, if, if it was a pastoral letter, I would always handwrite that. Yes, mm. which means to, so much, yeah. I think. Yeah, but I mean, I find that the, the number of reasons for which I would think a letter was appropriate dwindled absolutely because email or whatever mm. kind of took over yes richard you question whether or not anybody would be called gloria turn and taxis but do you know what her real given name is no do you know charles i don't she was born maria gloria ferdinanda joachima josephine wilhelmina huberta grafin von schonberg glackau well, you're going to be flamboyant on that. Yeah. I don't know, turn and yeah. taxi seems like a marvellous act of brevity and economy. Yeah. <laughs> turn and taxi. Princess TNT. I'm going to just share my fun fact now, because we've got to the end of my section. Is that in the 1930s, German rocket engineer Gerhard Zucker suggested mail could be delivered by rocket. But he failed to persuade the general post office because the test rockets exploded before reaching their intended <laughs> yeah. destination. Accuracy would have to come into it too, wouldn't it? it? Would. <laughs> Safety post- and accuracy would be quite. <laughs> the post office used to have really. a little pneumatic underground system in London, didn't they? Yes. It's like a network of underground little trains that used to get the mail. But then yes. those were the days when you would have two, three deliveries a day. Yes. I remember that. It wasn't yeah. that long ago, was no. it? No. So we're going to move over to you now, Richard. So this week we've given you a subject that's very close to your heart, I think, which is the piano. The piano, yes. Imagine, if you will, the Metropolitan Museum in New York. Imagine yourself sweeping in with Lady Gaga at the guard. No, don't do that. But if you do go there, you will find one of only three surviving pianos by the inventor of the piano, a man called Cristofiori, who invented the piano around 1700, as far as we know. He was an Italian, obviously. And it represented a technological innovation. Keyboard instruments, pretty much up to then, had involved the plucking of a string with a quill, the harpsichord, the virginals, the spinet, and all that. And what he perfected was a system whereby that string was hit by a hammer rather than plucked. What that meant was that you could get dynamics in. You could hit the string hard, you could hit the string soft, depending on how much pressure you applied on the key on the keyboard. You could make it piano, you could make it forte, hence pianoforte. And this was the great innovation 
I know that the Queen of Spain at the time ordered a few, and they went over to Spain, and her court musician was Domenico Scarlatti, who wrote 500 keyboard sonatas. And everyone used to think they were written for the harpsichord, but no, 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 no. We think that now they were actually written for the piano, forte or the forte piano, as the earlier ones are more commonly known. And it was one of those inventions which established itself and people started thinking, oh, this is good. Didn't persuade Bach at first. Bach was sent an early model and didn't like it at all because he thought the treble sound was too thin because it was just strung with one string. A later innovations, it was one of those things that the innovations happened very quickly because it was represented such a huge gain if you got it right. So they started putting more than one string together to make those sounds a bit more durable, if I can put it that way. And Bach actually ended up for a while as a salesman, did you know that, for the developing piano forte. The big innovations came along really with the rise of the Industrial Revolution and those processes, both manufacturing and also selling, began to change the way it was done. And a very significant person in all that was John Broadwood. Broadwood, the piano manufacturer, he was a Scot actually, and he walked 400 miles south to set himself up in business. And he started building Broadwood pianos, which were much bigger, much louder, much more robustly built. And he, being an enterprising person, would send his pianos. He famously sent one to Beethoven. And as the technology got better, they began to get bigger. And so if you listen to Beethoven's piano works, the earlier ones are on a more restricted keyboard. The later ones, after he's got his Broadwood, remember also that Beethoven was experiencing progressive deafness. So it was brighter and louder and bigger so he could hear a bit better, although he pounded away on it and broke all the strings, apparently. You can hear in his later works, you can see in his later works, the extent to which the technology has extended the keyboard. So there's more happening and higher stuff happening in his later works than in his earlier works. And then, so Broadwood was working in the, he died in the early 1800s. New things were happening all the time. One of the things that happened was the first hammers were covered with leather. So there's quite a, if you listen to the forte piano repertoire now, it's still being played now. In fact, it's had a bit of a revival, really, people like Melvin Tan. It sounds quite tinny, and that's partly because of the relative smallness of the case and the soundboard and the way it's strung, but partly also because of the leather rather than what we have now, which is felt. So hammers are felted. Here's an interesting thing. Two great piano firms in Paris in the 1800s, Pleil and Erard. Pleil associated with Chopin, Erard associated with Liszt or the other way around, I can't remember. But one of them developed the double escapement, which meant you could get the rapid, so instead of just hitting a note once and having to move on, you could go, get a repeated note, and you hear that in the music of Liszt, you hear that. Again, technology changes what we actually hear, it changes aesthetics, that chases what technology allows. The piano as we recognise in the form today really came along thanks to, it was a bloke called Steinweg, which is not that dissimilar from the Americanized version of his name, which is the one we know, which is Steinway. He was a piano builder, German extraction, ended up in New York, and Steinway, the firm that he established, still exists today, still makes the most highly prized pianos today, although there's a big argument about that. But they sort of standardised the pianos we know now as 88 keys and seven octaves thereabouts, and overstrung on an iron frame. Another innovation, iron strings were replaced by steel strings that produced a much better, more reliable, and more tunable note. There's the big four. There's Steinway, there's Bersendorfer, which is based in Vienna, there's Bechstein, which is based in Berlin, and there's Blutner, which I think is based in Leipzig. And these are the, the big four. The greatest pianists will choose one of those pianos. Have you played all four? I've played all four and admire very much the merits of, 
of all of them, I think the one that seems to be the one that most pianists go weak at their knees for is the Bersendorfer Imperial 290, which unusually has, I think, 96 strings because Ferruccio Pozzoni, one of the great pianists of the 20th century and composers, needed to have a bit more bottom because he was setting Bach organ works for the piano and he needed just a bit more bass. So Bersendorfer said, okay, we'll give you a bit more bass. But it put everybody off. Because if you had all of a sudden more keys available to your left hand, people started missing the notes they were meant to get. So there was actually a black wooden flap that was put over those extra keys so people would not miss sight the king would play in tune again. So that still happens. But the Bersendorfer Imperial Tuniter, beloved by classical musicians, beloved by jazz musicians, Oscar Peterson, Count Basie, they played Bersendorfer Tuniters. Pricey. You won't get much change out of half a million quid Goodness. for a Bersendorfer. Yeah. And you won't get a decent piano for under six figures now. But are there many of them? Steinway, I think, make now about two and a half thousand a year. Okay. There's also subtle differences. In America, for example, Baldwin is their perhaps most famous American make, and it's a completely different sound. Dave Brubeck, for example, always played a Baldwin, and you'll recognize that. This is quite nerdy, but it's got quite a. You can tell the piano from the sound it makes. Steinway has this gorgeous, lovely lovely rich bell-like tone. Mm -hmm. Bechstein has a kind of brightness about it. They have different movements as well, different technologies. The one interrupter to this is Fazioli, Italian piano manufacturer, mechanical engineer and a musician and a great pianist. And he formed a piano company in the 1980s and built the Fazioli, which is an absolutely glorious, glorious piano. And you see a few of them knocking around now. But it would be a brave man, I think, or a brave woman, who decided to introduce a new well, concert grand piano. Is there, you, you talked about the, the improvements over the ages, but is there something that needs to be done to take a piano to a different level? Is there something that is the holy grail that can't quite be done? I don't think so. I think the piano in the sort of classical piano form is hostage to fortune to say so, but it would be hard to see and the innovations that have come since then have come out through electronic. So, yes, I was going to ask I, you the, about that. <laughs> well, I mean, the first sort of electronic musical instrument was actually in the 18th century. A Czech theologian came up with one whose name I can neither remember nor pronounce. I might put that unwelcome task onto the disembodied voice. <laughs> um, but then uh, in the 1920s, electric pianos started to be developed. And then, I mean, the real breakthrough came with the Fender Rhodes, I think, mm. which is one of the most distinctive Herbie Hancock plays. If you listen to the beginning of the theme tune to Taxi, that very oh, distinctive. Yes. Again, and that's, a, that instead of a string, it's a sort of tine that's struck. What did you play in your pop star days? Well, I mean, my piano I have at home is a Yamaha. First thing I did when I got my advance, actually, my first advance when I signed a recording contract was go to Chapels of Bond Street. And I bought my first Yamaha, my only Yamaha, in fact. And then for touring, there's a Yamaha CP80, which is sort of compromised, a uh, Piano, it's a proper piano, but with electric, electronic pickups. And then sampling came along. So now most digital pianos use sampled sound. What you lack, though, and there's never been, no matter how good the technology gets, you don't get that actual intimate connection. Your finger depresses a key. Mm -hmm. It goes through a system of gears and levers, and a hammer hits a string. And the control, the physical relationship you have as a player to the sound that's coming out of the box you can't copy that, I don't think. And it's why I think sample piano sounds always sound a bit flat, because you don't have the colour and the richness. Mm. Human touch, right? Yeah. The piano forte. I think we have some comments from our disembodied voice. The Czech theologian, Vaclav Prokop Divis, 
if you put Ooh. it in 1748. 1748, there you go. You mentioned Blutner. It is in Leipzig, as you thought it was. Have you got a favourite fact? Tell us. Yes. Well, your piano, I think, is a Broadwood, Charles, I seem to recall. I don't know when that came to you, but it's, it's a veteran. Yes, it's an oldie. Yeah. Well, Broadwood was a pioneer, not just in the manufacturing pianos, but Mrs. Broadwood was one of the first people in trade to be invited into the social circles of her so-called superiors. So in the early 1800s, and all of a sudden, or the late 18th century, when people of aristocratic birth would start to have social relations with people who got money through trade, that was a whole big new thing. And famously, there was one aristocratic lady, I can't remember who it was, but she invited Mrs. Broadwood to tea. And it was the first time she'd ever invited someone not from her own social class to tea. So they were all very excited about it. Mrs. Broadwood was a charming and delightful person. And so they'd agree that they would invite her, but on no account was anyone to mention pianos at all, because that would be embarrassing. And it all went perfectly well. It was a wonderful, she got on everyone, everyone had a lovely time. And then a footman came to the hostess and said, Mrs. Broadwood's carriage is at the door. Whereupon the hostess turned to her and said, dear Mrs. Broadwood, I hear your pianos at the door, carriages at the door. <laughs> Brilliant. Very good. Very good. Thank you. I think that gets us to the bit that we've all been waiting for, really. So people who've been listening for a while will know this already, that each week our disembodied voice will completely undemocratically, yep. as, as Richard will agree, choose a winner. So who is the winner this week, please? I think start as we mean to go on, it's it's Charles. <laughs> <laughs> well done. I think that's oh, fair, dear. to be honest. That didn't oh, make dear. me laugh, well, thank you. Well, so um, thank you, George IV. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Got him to thank for something. Early days. Early, Early days. days. So we're only episode one. Yeah. <laughs> Are you, you're firmly in second position, aren't you, Kat? And I'm trailing a miserable and wretched third. Well, I mean, I haven't I'm... been that many. We've only had nine episodes, I think. Yeah, so exactly. It's all fine. Also, I will, I will say that Charles and I have both turned up with extensive notes that we're scribbling. We've got pens. I can't see anything here. So I just feel like your commitment to the whole course might be a little bit... Well, he knows so much. This is the annoying thing about Richard. <laughs> Having know. known him for a while, you do know a lot about a lot. I have the appearance of knowing a lot about a lot. But also you have very... The way you deliver information is very clever and layered. If there are any gaps, you don't get to see it. I just that's much nicer than an arbitrary laurel thrown at you grudgingly <laughs> by a judge lacking in Solomonic discretion, if I might put it that way. It's fair. Excellent. Well, it's, it's all to play for. We've got a whole new set. In fact, we've got our next week's subjects coming up quite soon as well. So for next week, we've got Charles. You're going to be looking into Hangman. Mm, not the game. Not the game. <laughs> and Richard. Theatre superstitions. Theatre superstitions. And I will be looking at another one of our um, suggested topics, actually, which is witch marks and witchcraft. So that's going to be a fun one. We're okay. spooky. Well, we should, that should be the Halloween episode. It should yes. be, shouldn't it? That's what it's driven us to. <laughs> so that's it for this week, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please do subscribe and leave us a review because it will really help other people find us. You can also suggest some rabbit holes for us to fall down in the future. You can even send us an email because we've got a very special email address. If you write to rabbitholedetectives at gmail.com, then you can suggest things we can talk about in the future. So in the words from Lewis Carroll's Alice, have you guessed the riddle yet? Goodbye. Goodbye. See you.